goals here at Timberline is, is to raise up um, a, a team of men who, who will be preaching on a regular basis here. That, that's our goal. Not that you would just hear me preach on a regular basis, but we want to see men regularly raised up uh, for the purpose of, of preaching, uh, not only to be able to teach and, and equip others, but also with the idea of a potential church planting and, and other ways to advance the kingdom. And so today, it's, it's, I've gotten many comments. I don't normally wear a coat. I don't normally wear a tie. I'm not even preaching today, and yet I have worn them. Uh, who knows why? Um, but it's, uh, it's with great honor. Today, I'm going to introduce uh, Ben Woods, who many of you have known, and, and he's going to, to preach today. Many of, you have op- many of you have had the opportunity to get to know him. Uh, ben and his family began coming uh, back in February of this year. He's married to Melissa. They have two children, Aaron and Cora. And since February, Ben has been getting involved just here in the ministry at Timberline. Uh, he, he helps us with the youth. He leads the youth ministry. He has taken over the office administration. Um, he's helping us as elders rethink how we do global missions. He's been very helpful in that. He is also willing, and you've seen this, where he helps out in many other ministries where he just kind of wears whatever whatever hat is needed at that moment. Ben Ben does so quite willingly. Now a few things you might not know about Ben. This is where I have fun with it. No, uh, uh, he wears driving gloves. I have no idea why. Uh, he grew up on the mission field of Indonesia. He went to boarding school. He does wood burning art, which is actually really cool. He is a five on the Enneagram, in case any of you know those things. Uh, he's a believer of essential oils. Those are all important things. Um, but, but above all, what, what stands, about, stands out about him is his love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a man who loves the gospel. He desires to shepherd his family um, in Christ, that they would grow in their knowledge and their love for Jesus Christ. And what you'll see today as he is here, he has a passion uh, to teach and equip the church. He wants to see the church as a whole, whether it's youth, whether it's college, whether it's single, married, young, old, whatever age, whatever demographic, that they would be equipped in the Word of God for the purpose of, of giving God glory in all of their lives. Uh, ben has encouraged me greatly in my faith, uh, and I know he's encouraged many of you today, and I'm excited as today, corporately, we get to sit under the teaching that he'll bring, and we'll all be edified through that. And so with that, I'm going to have Ben come forward and pray with him and for him. You thought I was going to say a lot of other stuff, didn't you? Father, we thank you for this day. And God, I thank you for this time now that we have to sit under your word. Lord, you have given us your word. It is inspired. It comes with your full authority. It is inerrant and infallible. And we know it is for the purpose of correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. And Lord, I pray as the word goes forth today, and as your spirit works through Ben, that, Lord, your word would not return void, but it will accomplish all that you desire. And, Lord, I pray that today we'd be edified, we'd be encouraged, we'd be convicted, and we'd be led to live lives that glorify you. God, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for how, God, you are, are strengthening more and more men in our church uh, for the purpose of, of teaching and equipping with the word. And, uh, Lord, bless this time. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Cool. Good morning, Timberline. 
I'm going to do my best to make this Hobbit podium work for me today. <laughs> Love you, buddy. All right, dismiss. <laughs> All right, I am super, super excited about our text today, um, so I'm not going to tell any cool stories, and I'm just going to jump right in, okay? Is that okay with everybody? Yeah. Cool. Um, if you've been with us, we have been walking through uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation begins with a vision of Jesus, and then a message to the churches, to, to, main, to seven major church hubs in Asia Minor. And we read about these churches in chapters two and three, how five of these seven churches have started to compromise and become complacent. Now, there's a lot of factors that go in, into why a church fails, why a church becomes complacent. Um, and today, we're going to look at one of those reasons. But first, I asked Google, what do you long for? Google answered, and I was terrified. That question kicked back 7,910,000,000 responses in 0.45 seconds. That's greater than the current population of our planet. To put this another way, if you were to spend one second per response, one second, it would take you 250 years to go through them all. Now, obviously, some of these responses are duplicates. But clearly, humanity wants to have an answer for this question. Clearly, this struck a nerve on Google. So today, we're going to look at that question a little bit more. What about you? What do you long for? Is it the new house? The new car? Is it the ideal job? Is it the ideal mate? Is it that raise? Is it that vacation? Is it lunch? Now, keep in mind, these things are good things. God has blessed us, and he gives us good things, so long as they don't become God things. So I want to ask you this morning, when you have a moment to yourself, when, when you have a moment of peace and quiet, and I know those are far and few between, I get that, but when you have those moments, where does your imagination take you? Where does the quiet of your heart take you? Is it to those things? Is it to these worldly comforts? Or does it cry out for something more, something deeper, something a little more eternal? Last week, Pastor Nick took us to the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. We learned about the bittersweet nature of this vision, how God's church on earth is being sent out, and we are sent out as lambs to the slaughter. We are being persecuted, but we are also triumphant because this gospel is going to be preached. But the world hates us for this. The world relishes destroying us. We, we read about the world celebrating when martyrs are, are fallen. They give presents. That's weird. Why does that happen? As Nick said, our world is at war. We have God's heavenly kingdom, we have an earthly kingdom, and those kingdoms are at war. And that war will continue until the last martyr has been slain, until this gospel has gone to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every people. Today, we're going to look at 
trumpet number seven. It's a really cool passage. When the triumphant seventh trumpet sounds, only God's kingdom and his saints shall prevail. Please stand with me as we read from Revelation chapter 11. We stand at Timberland because we believe God's word comes with his full authority and we want to give it the respect that it is due. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, for who, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Holy Father, we stand amazed at the power of your word, its ability to rebuke and correct and to train and to give us peace and encouragement. Father, you are good and you are blessed and you are holy today, and we thank you for the gift of your word I pray right now that your spirit would come and dwell amongst us in this message, that you would cast aside any distractions in any of our hearts and our minds, that we would be able to focus and hear and to contemplate and to just be saturated by your word and your presence. Thank you, Father, that you are good and you are holy and you keep your promises. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Our passage today begins with a declaration. It's the declaration of the fulfillment of every single one of God's promises. The trumpet blast and this declaration are synonymous, and they reveal the conclusion of the final judgment. Now, it's important that when we read Revelation, we don't read it as a linear progression, as a sequence of events. Rather, it is the same events observed from multiple points of view. Okay? So let's compare this seventh seal, the seventh trumpet with the seventh seal, since they overlap each other. In contrast, the seal, we have silence in heaven, versus now we have a loud chorus in heaven. Now the image of the seals was used to highlight the promise that Jesus is the one that sustains us, that preserves us, that seals us, just like he prayed in John chapter 17. The buildup of silence we read about in the seals is the prayers of the saints saying, God, how much longer until you judge the wicked? How much longer are the blood of the martyrs going to flow? When are you going to finish it? And God says, wait just a bit longer. It's coming. Wait just a bit longer. Then the seventh trumpet is this announcement. Hey, it's here. It's come. It's finished. This is what this trumpet is ushering in, this declaration. See also how in 8.5 we have peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now we have heavy hail included in that description. It's not something new. It's just added on, magnifying 
the greatness and importance of this event. Every time God's glory is revealed, these things happen. We hear the lightning. We hear the thunder. We hear the rumblings. Every time God's glory is revealed, judgment follows. Both the seals and the trumpets give us a brief historical overview of the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. The seals focus on the believers, on how Jesus seals them as his own and protects them as part of his plan. The trumpets focus on the same period of time, but focuses primarily on the wickedness of our earth, the corruption of Satan's kingdom and how it is saturating our world and how the saints, the believers, are going to feel that wickedness pressing in on them. Both offer a perspective on the same eternal condition facing all of humanity. You are sealed, which means you have declared with your voice and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and therefore get to experience his protection, his security for all of eternity, or you're not sealed. You haven't declared Jesus as Lord. You are still in rebellion against God, and you will face his wrath for all of eternity. Those are the only two conditions. Both have an interlude vision that highlights why the seals and the trumpets are important. The seals were a promise that God will protect and seal for eternity his people. We read about that, that multitude in front of the throne in 7 verse 9. The trumpets are the triumphant witness of this gospel going out into the world amidst this wicked persecution, both of which accomplish God's will. So this seventh trumpet is a declaration that all of God's kingdom promises have finally been fulfilled. fulfilled. Let's read it again. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what is this kingdom announced in verse 15? What does this mean? I thought Jesus, when he came to earth, already ushered in this kingdom. Now it's important that we, we remember and we focus on the words, has become here. But first, let's take a look at what the Bible says about God's kingdom. Now, we've heard a lot of stories about trumpets so far in this series. We, we heard about Jericho. You guys remember that one? Jericho and the blast of the trumpets brought down the walls. The trumpet blast ushered in judgment against Jericho and victory for the Israelites. Last Sunday, Nick mentioned the story of Gideon, where 300 men armed with torches, and trumpets defeated a Midian army so massive their camels were like the grains of sand on the beach, defeated by 300 men. There's another Old Testament trumpet reference that I want to bring to your attention today, and it's really cool. And we find it in the book of Leviticus. It's for you, Mom. <laughs> Leviticus is the first book studied by Hebrew children and probably the last book studied by anybody here. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Let's be fair. Okay? Which is a shame because it's where we get the sacrificial atonement system. It's where we get a definition of the priesthood. It's where we get to see the definition of holiness. The theme of the entire book is how are we to respond and live 
now that we have been freed from slavery from Egypt? How are we to respond and live if God himself was dwelling in our camp? Of all the books from the New Testament, Revelation is the most heavily saturated with allusions to the Old Testament. What does that mean? It means if you want a deeper understanding of what's going on here with all this, these visions and all this imagery and all these, these things that just seem kind of odd, if you want a better understanding of that, spend some time in the Old Testament. Spend some time in Leviticus. It helps a lot. In Leviticus chapter 25 is where we're going to look at, beginning in verse 8, we get a description of something called the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Now, seven is a really important number. Numbers have meaning in the Bible. It's a meaning for holiness. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. Tenth day of the seventh month. That's a really good day. Tenth is whole, complete. Seven is holiness. This is a holy day where the trumpet is going to go out. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. Verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land and all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. This trumpet blast on this 50th year was an announcement saying, listen, liberty... Deliverance, freedom, go back to your land. Property goes back to its original owner. Slaves are set free. All debt is extinguished. That'd be pretty cool, right? That'd be pretty cool. The point of the year of Jubilee was to give us something to long for, to look forward to, a glimpse into God's kingdom where his love and mercy and grace and abundance overflows now, we, we, we complain about having to wait for Christmas once a year. Imagine having to wait 50 years for this. This was designed to drive the hearts and minds of the people to long for this day. And here we hear this promise over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The promise of this kingdom, the promise of this long-awaited fulfillment. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God promised that if his people would obey him, and keep his covenant, then out of all nations they would be his treasured possession. Although the whole earth is his, they would be a kingdom just for him. First Chronicles 17 verse 10 says, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his Kingdom. This was a promise to David about Jesus. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom. His throne will be established forever. We hear this promise over and over and over again. Isaiah 2.4, he will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning, pruning hooks. Nations will not take sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
Daniel 2.44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Last one, Zechariah 14.9, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. This kingdom referenced over and over and over again in the Pentateuch, in the histories, in the prophets, culminates in the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, and it will either bring jubilation or it's going to bring doom. In Luke 4, Jesus explains that his mission on earth was to begin this kingdom. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus is going to read from the Old Testament. He's reading from Isaiah 61, which talks about the year of Jubilee. Luke 4, verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogues were fixed, were fixed on him. And he began to say to, the, say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was the inauguration of this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom. Jesus proclaims the good news of salvation. He proclaims that you can have a relationship with God and that there is forgiveness of sins and that we can experience the year of the Lord's favor. But as Nick said last week, this kingdom is not at peace right now. This kingdom is at war. And that war will continue until the last martyr has been slain, until this gospel has reached every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. But Jesus made some promises about this kingdom, and they're good promises. They might not sound good, but they're good promises. In Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus promises war. In verse 7, he promises natural disasters. In verse, 9, in verse 9, he promises martyrdom. In verse 24, he promises false Christ will come and preach a different gospel. But then he promises in verse 14 of chapter 24 that this gospel will last until the very end. And then this awesome promise in verse 31 of chapter 24, he promises that a loud trumpet will gather up his elect, his sealed. And then, of course, in Matthew 28, 18, he promises to give us authority, delegated authority, authority to go and complete this task. And he promises to be with us until the very end. So what's being declared? Here's where the has become that I mentioned earlier becomes so important. The declaration is the culmination of all of God's promises concerning his redemption plan that began in the garden when we screwed it up, culminating all the way to this point. This is every single last promise has been fulfilled. That's cool. What does that mean? 
Cancer is no more. Dementia is no more. Lust and adultery are no more. Racism is no more. War is no more. Fear, anxiety, depression are no more. Sin is no more. Death is no more. It's the end of the conflict, guys. It's the end of that conflict between these warring kingdoms. It's the declaration that this temporary sovereignty that I've given to Satan to torment this earth, to corrupt this earth, I'm giving that authority, I'm taking that authority back, and I'm crushing him. It's done. He has no more power, no more authority. God has taken control of all of creation and all of eternity. The last martyr has been slain. This gospel has gone to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and it's time for it to be done. This fulfills the longing of every single one of the martyred saints praying before the throne. This fulfills the longing of every single prophet we read about in the Old Testament. This fulfills even the longing of earth, of creation, that we read about in Romans chapter 8, longing for this day. So how does heaven respond to this declaration? Verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is how we respond to promises kept. This is how we respond to longings met with exaltation. Let's break this down a little bit, because it's really, really cool, guys. Follow me on this. Who is and who was. This is the conclusion of history. I know we're on chapter 11, and it's only halfway through the book, but Revelation is really kind of two books put together between 11 and 12. And this, this conclusion here marks the end of history. In, verse, in chapter 12, we're going to look at history again from another point of view, another perspective. But this is a conclusion statement. Who, uh, who is and who was, meaning there will never again be a point where we're waiting for who is to come. That's why it's not there. Who is to come was a promise, and it was just fulfilled. He's here. It's happened. And begun to reign. We heard about this during worship in Psalm 97. A beautiful, beautiful psalm giving us a foretaste of this kingdom, of this announcement coming right now. The nations raged. That was a good one. That comes from Psalm chapter 2, which is all about Jesus, and it begins with this question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Rebellion. This is really good. He who sits on the throne in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs at them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The rulers of the earth, both the, the spiritual oppressors and the physical oppressors, 
have set themselves apart from God. They are in rebellion against God's authority, which is laughable considering who our God is. It's all in vain considering these promises and the Lord of creation is the one that sustains all this. This psalm is a beautiful announcement foreshadowing what happens here in the seventh trumpet. For those who have been sealed by Jesus, this is the most awesome moment in history. For those who haven't, this is the most terrifying moment imaginable. The judgment of the infinite almighty God is upon you and you will be undone if you are not sealed. The nations raged, but God wrathed. Woke you up, Robert. (laughs) Just like the only two conditions are sealed and not sealed, the only two consequences of this moment are reward or wrath. There is no fence, guys. There is no go-between. I'm just going to ride in between these two, and whichever one looks good at the end, that's where I'm going to go. That's, that's not here at all. There is no appealing to the judge on the basis of good behavior. It's too late. You are either sealed by the blood of the Lamb, or you are under the wrath of Almighty God. Now, did you catch the difference in the tone of this praise? It's really cool. The difference from what we've read in Revelation so far. If you've been here, hopefully you've been taking notes and paying attention. Thus far in Revelation, we hear, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Holy, holy, holy. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And then we have this praise, beginning with, we give thanks. Why do we give thanks? We're giving thanks for gratitude. We're giving thanks that all of these promises that we've read about in the Old Testament, all of these promises that Jesus made have come to fruition. All of the prayers of the saints, all of the prayers of the martyrs, it has all been answered. So of course we're going to respond with exaltation. Of course we're going to respond with thank you. Not only this, but we are finally reunited. We are finally united, excuse me. We are finally united with our king, with our savior, with our champion, fulfilling that longing that should be in the very depths of your soul. Heaven erupts with songs of gratitude for justice served, like we've read about in 11, injustice after injustice, slain martyrs after slain martyrs. God, when will you answer? He just did. No longer are we considered great or small. Inferiority and superiority are sin-based constructs designed to keep us apart. But in this kingdom, there is no distinction, just like we read about in Galatians 3.28. Our eternal God did an infinite thing to save us by sending his son to die for our sin while while we were still his enemies. 
and now we get to live in this kingdom? That's amazing. Of course I'm going to worship. Of course I'm going to say thank you. Our longings have now been satisfied. That's what this promises us. Here we catch a glimpse of eternity in the kingdom of God, an eternity of gratitude and worship. And it's amazing. As God's glory is revealed with the triumphant seventh trumpet, I had to practice that, guys. As his glory is revealed, everything that is not his kingdom will be consumed in the radiance of his power so that only his temple remains. We catch a glimpse of that, this, this beautiful, beautiful, amazing symbolism here at the, the halfway point of this book. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Now in the Old Testament, the temple signified God's geographic presence here on earth. It was the focal point for all sacrifices and worship. But in the New Testament, including Revelation, we, his church, his saints, we are called the church. We are called his temple. We are called his dwelling place. Why? Because the Holy Spirit resides within us. We are holy because the one that is holy has sealed us. In fact, all of the symbolism of the Old Testament, when it talks about the temple and the tabernacle being physical locations, all of those were pointing to the fact that we are his favorite dwelling place amongst us. Our lives, our obedience, become an expression of worship. Instead of going to a a central location, we worship from our hearts, from our lives, from our obedience. Then we have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark rested in the Holy of Holies, which was so holy, it was only entered into once a year by the high priest to perform the atoning sacrifice for the people. The covering of the ark was called the mercy seat. Inside the ark was the law, basically the guidelines of how you should live. The covering of it was called the mercy seat, and that's where the priest would splatter the sacrificial blood on the mercy seat. And then God's presence hovered above it. So that mercy seat was between how we were to live and God Almighty which of course is a wonderful picture of Jesus, of him being the sacrifice, of him being the bridge between us and God. That's always been the case. So we have this beautiful symbolism taken out of Exodus 25. Guys, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about all the different nuance, all the different symbolism, and it is, it is gorgeous. We don't have that much time. Nick's already looking at his watch. But the most important part of this verse that I want you to catch, the most important part is the word opened. The temple is open 
which means there is no longer any separation, there is no longer any curtain, there is no longer any barrier between God and his people. God's holiness is revealed at its fullest. And the only things that will not experience the wrath of his holiness are those that have been sealed by Jesus. As it says in John 1, 1 John 1, sorry, 1 John 3, verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. No curtain, no, no ambiguous description. We will see him as he is and we will reflect that glory. We aren't going back to the garden, guys. We're not going back to how it was at creation. This is something different. This is something new. This is a culmination of all of these promises through the centuries, through the millennia. Jesus longs for his church. Jesus longs for his bride. He says so in John 17, 24. I long for these that you have given me to be with me. Why? So that they can share in my glory. This isn't restoration back to the garden. This is a consummation of all of these promises, the finality, the completion. We're going to see our king. Guys, this is a glorious day. This is an awesome passage. Is this what you're longing for, though? Is this the fulfillment of your deepest craving? Satan wants to do everything in his power to distract us from this promise. He wants to do everything in his power to delay this promise because it means his doom. Which is why this letter was so important, which was why this letter was penned to these churches saying, listen, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face hardship. The world hates you because you are not of this world. This is why. But we have this promise here. Victory has already been announced. Go live it out. Or are we going to be complacent? Are we going to substitute the rich promises we have here in Scripture for some cheap substitute here on earth? Something that will fade away. Something that will not last forever. Or does your soul cry out for the longing of your king? This, this, this is what the church needed to hear back when John wrote this. This is what they needed to hear. Victory is assured. This is what every church needs to hear. Over and over and over and over again. This is our focus. This is our longing. Do you long for this church? Does your soul cry out for this to be done? Our king is coming, guys. Our king is coming. When the last martyr has fallen, when this gospel has gone to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. Do you want your king to come back? We got work to do. Let's pray.